Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Ziad Shamrukh, Executive Director of the Middle East Children's Alliance, who describes the humanitarian disaster facing 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza and the urgent need for a ceasefire to deliver emergency aid. Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and former CIA analyst who assesses growing global concern that the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza could escalate into a wider regional war. And Susan Little with the Environmental Working Group, who talks about California's new Food Safety Act that bans four chemical food additives and the impact the law will have on California and the rest of the nation. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. The worst drought to impact the Amazon River in over a century has dramatically lowered water levels, cutting off isolated indigenous villages as boats used as essential transportation for supplies of water, food, and medicines are stranded. In recent days, non-governmental organizations have responded by delivering critical supplies. While the Brazilian government blames the historic drought on El Nino, environmental activists blame climate change, deforestation, and the intrusion of agriculture into the Amazon jungle. One consequence of extreme water temperatures is the die-off of large numbers of fish and 100 endangered dolphins. In the port of Manaus, the largest port in the Amazon, the water level fell to its lowest since 1902. Water in many smaller rivers and streams have become muddy and not drinkable across the Amazon River basin. The Brazilian government's science department expects the drought to continue through December, which has already impacted nearly half a million people in the Amazon. Indigenous groups are now demanding the Brazilian government declare a climate emergency to urgently address the vulnerability of the region's native peoples. Big cities and states across the U.S. are pushing for expedited work authorization permits from the Biden administration in order to allow the growing number of asylum seekers across the nation to find work and leave overcrowded shelters. In September, the Biden administration announced it would provide temporary legal status to Venezuelan migrants who arrived before August. In New York City, 44,000 of the 107,000 newly arrived migrants came from Venezuela. Venezuelans also make up the largest share of migrants in Chicago, as Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker urged the federal government to waive fees for migrant work permits. Republican governors Greg Abbott of Texas and Ron DeSantis of Florida have used the asylum seekers as political props by busing thousands of newly arrived migrants to big cities run by Democrats. While some Venezuelans have fled their country due to political repression, the majority of those coming to the U.S. are escaping a collapsing economy plagued by government mismanagement and harsh 
U.S. economic sanctions. Progressive Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez asserts that U.S. sanctions were contributing to the destabilization that drives migration. Forbes magazine reports that most Venezuelan business leaders now favor the lifting of U.S. economic sanctions. Since Hurricane Katrina slammed into New Orleans in 2005, a new $150 billion disaster restoration industry has grown, responding to extreme weather events like hurricanes, tornadoes, and wildfires. Low-wage immigrant workers hired by contractors often endure toxic work conditions with little protection. The U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, the federal agency created to protect workers, has ignored research on workplace safeguards against post-disaster toxic exposures. According to researchers from the Center for Public Integrity and Columbia Journalism Investigations, OSHA has enacted a disaster emergency response policy favoring a fast recovery over worker health. OSHA rules say contractors must train workers in the proper handling of lead and asbestos-laden material. Yet, immigrant workers interviewed said their employers rarely provided protective equipment and never offered training on the handling of toxic materials. Two-thirds of the workers told investigators that they've been exposed to mold and asbestos on the job, and over time, many suffered from chronic ailments, including lung cancer, asthma, and loss of vision. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After Hamas terrorists slaughtered 1,400 Israelis and kidnapped more than 220 civilians held as hostages on October 7th, Israel's military responded with wave after wave of missile and bombing attacks on Gaza. The Palestinian Health Ministry reports that as of October 24th, more than 5,700 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli bombs since October 7th, including 2,360 children. With Israel's blockade of food, water, medical supplies, fuel and electricity into Gaza, international aid agencies report that 2.3 million Palestinians are suffering through a humanitarian catastrophe in the impoverished territory, one of the most densely populated places in the world. Although several dozen aid trucks have been permitted to enter Gaza with emergency supplies in recent days, aid organizations complain it's wholly inadequate. The Biden administration has thus far resisted worldwide calls for a ceasefire and de-escalation of the war, vetoing a United Nations Security Council resolution on October 18th that condemned all violence against civilians in the conflict and urged humanitarian aid to Palestinians in Gaza. Your reporter spoke with Ziad Shamrouk, executive director of the Middle East Children's Alliance, whose organization has helped to provide Gaza's residents with potable drinking water over the last 14 years. 
Here he describes the humanitarian crisis people in Gaza are now facing and what can and must be done to alleviate their suffering. Every day they speak about this day is the worst day. And later on, the second day, we find out the, the day before it was easier than the new day. Because the amount of numbers of houses bombed, the amount of numbers that the people they are killed and injured, or people they are already left their homes, evacuated. And according to the, what's going on in the hospitals in Gaza Strip too. So the people all the time, they say, this is the worst day. And they speak about that in the details that they are missing the basic needs, no water. Can you imagine people living without water, especially with families without water and children without water? For example, my colleague, Wafa, she's living in the Syrah refugee camps. Her house, it's usually there are like five to six people in this house. Right now, over 60 people in her house, most of them children. And they decided we are not going to leave our house. So they opened the door and they welcomed people. They left from north of Gaza. They are living with them. They were seeking secure place. And in fact, actually, no secure place in Gaza because these people, even they were evacuated. And according to United Nations, 1.4 million, more than half of the people in Gaza Strip already they left their, their houses, and most of their houses actually destroyed. And they are living in shelters in the United Nations or with their relatives, families, friends, etc. I know in your introduction you say the war between Hamas and Israel. But in fact, the people in Gaza, they say that this kind of attack is not on Hamas. It's on Palestinian people. And they describe it as it's a genocidal attack because they are targeting people They are in their homes or people in the road leaving their houses, even the people they reached the south area for secure place, places, they thought they reached them and they killed them. And many families, you have over 500 families already erased where the father and the mother and the children killed. And in some cases, the parents, the grandparents and the children, all of them, and you spoke 5,000 people, over 5,000 people they were killed, but actually there is more than 1,500 people reported missed, and the people they think they are already killed, they are under the rubbles of their homes after it was destroyed. So the number actually, it's not accurate in any case. The only way to find the accurate numbers is after the ceasefire and the people, they will be able to reach to the houses and find these bodies. Siad. Israel's government has announced that a ground invasion is imminent. What are your concerns about how an Israeli ground offensive into Gaza, their stated goal being to destroy Hamas's leadership and military capacity? How, in your view, will this impact an already dire situation for Gaza's civilian population? It means for me as a person, as a Palestinian, or as an organization try to help the people. This will make complicate more the services. It means that more people will die. If we speak about 15,000 people injured, more than 15,000 people injured, this, there is a danger on them because the ground troops, when they enter, it will be impossible for all the relief teams or medical teams to do their jobs. It means that these numbers, it will increase more and more and we'll find ourselves in tens of thousands of victims that will be uh, killed in Gaza Strip. What we are asking, what we are calling all the international human rights and all the relief 
we need a ceasefire right now, at least to be able to support the people to survive. These children who injured to can make it to survive. If the ground truth will go in, this is something the catastrophe will be double, triple, and maybe more uh, in the future. And who knows what will happen? It's hard to predict what will happen there. But I know for organizations like us, we are worried about our staff and our partners. And every day, even when they go do the distribution, take the streets, try to help. After the ground troops, it will be very hard to do any kind of work. It will be very hard. This is another disaster coming, and it will be doubled or tripled on the head of the people of Gaza Strip. And this is happening in front of all the world. This is the sad part. Even you have governments, they support that, and this is the sad part. I know the solidarity movement expanding with Palestinian people, but this is the most dangerous thing could happen in front of us in 2023. That was Ziyad Shamrukh, executive director of the Middle East Children's Alliance. Learn more about the Alliance's work in Gaza during the current crisis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In the two weeks since Hamas terrorists committed atrocities across southern Israel, killing 1,400 civilian men, women, and children, the Israeli military has engaged in collective punishment of the 2.3 million Palestinians living in Gaza. Intensive missile and bombing attacks have killed more than 5,000 Palestinian civilians, including more than 2,000 children. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres Pope Francis and heads of state from around the world have condemned Hamas for its brutal terrorist attack and expressed concern that Israel's siege and blockade of Gaza will kill many more innocent civilians and trigger a regional war. With Israel's planned ground assault on Gaza, many observers share the concern that the conflict could soon expand into a broader Middle East war. As Israel exchanges fire with powerful Hezbollah forces, Across its northern border with Lebanon, the U.S. has sent two aircraft carriers to the region and accused Iran of actively facilitating rocket and drone attacks by its proxy groups on American bases in Iraq and Syria. Your reporter spoke with Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and former CIA analyst who assesses growing concern that the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza could soon spin out of control and ignite a dangerous wider Middle East conflict. So it seems to me you have to consider the possibility of a wider engagement in that region. And if Hezbollah got into uh, the war, they could do the kind of damage to Israel that uh, Hamas is just not capable of doing. They have far more sophisticated rockets and even missiles with good guidance uh, technology. They have tens of thousands of these things that have been uh, smuggled into Lebanon through Syria, which is why Israel stepped up its bombing of Syrian uh, airfields in the past uh, two weeks, which is part of the widening engagement that no one is really talking about. I think to date Hezbollah has been very careful because I think all of the fighting that I'm aware of has been in this region called Shaba Farms, which is a disputed region on the Lebanese-Israeli border. Hezbollah knows darn well, and Netanyahu has emphasized this many times, that if they get involved in this war, Beirut is going to be leveled. There's going to be massive uh, destruction 
And we've we've seen that before. We saw that in 2006. And, of course, it was an Israeli strategic blunder to go into Lebanon in the first place in 1982. And, and we had to send Marines in to pull Israeli chestnuts out of the fire, which led to the attacks on our embassy and the Marine barracks in 1983. These accusations with regard to Iran, I think, are made without any evidence whatsoever. I think the Biden administration uh, used intelligence transparency to great effect when Russia went into Ukraine in 2022. Uh, if they want to have some credibility among the American public and, more importantly, the international public, where opinion is shifting in the direction of Hamas because of what the Israelis are doing in Gaza, uh, they're going to have to be a little more transparent. Uh, just to say, as uh, White House and State Department spokesmen have been saying, that is that Iran is stepping up its engagement, uh, we, we don't know that. We do know that there are forces that have gotten support from Iran over the years, including Hamas and Hezbollah and some of the more fundamentalist groups in the Middle East. But the problem with Iran is we need to be talking to Iran. You know, the, this was the blunder uh, that Trump made when he pulled the United States out of the Iran Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which covered the denuclearization in terms of weaponry in the Iran nuclear program. But it, it could be a self-fulfilling prophecy, the way we're dealing with Iran, and the fact that we're sending two carrier task force to the Mediterranean at the same time we're saying we're not going to get involved militarily. I mean, that's, that's just bizarre to me. Uh, obviously, it's there just as a an attempt to intimidate Hezbollah and Iran. But what if Iran decides to do some military engagement against Israeli positions or U.S. forces? We still have 2,500 troops in Iraq. So the potential for a wider engagement, I think, is a, a realistic scenario. I think it would be something no one really wants. I don't think Iran really wants to challenge the United States. I don't think the United States is looking for war. I don't think Hezbollah really wants to see, uh, again, the suffering that will ensue from Israeli bombing raids over Lebanon. But, you know, I think of World War I, that's the war to me that no one really wanted, and it ended in the worst kind of war of attrition, trench warfare that we've seen in modern times. So this should be part of the calculations. Mel, I did want to ask you about a ceasefire there are growing demands around the world for a ceasefire and, and cessation of the bombing of Gaza to allow humanitarian aid to the people, the 2.3 million people living in Gaza who've had their water, food, and medical supplies cut off. What can President Biden do, if anything, to exert pressure on Israel to stall this impending, we're told, ground invasion of Gaza that could set things off in a horrible way? that he has made these points in private. He's, he has said very little in public, but I think that the one remark about don't be consumed by rage, that was a direct allusion to our rage after 9-11 when we did much more damage to ourselves and to others by going into Iraq, where we still are, or Afghanistan for uh, 20 years. So Biden knows what he's talking about. But we know that Netanyahu will do anything to hold on to military power. He's very Trumpian in that regard. That's his battle with the uh, Supreme Court of Israel and trying to weaken the authority of the Supreme Court. That's in part to keep himself out of jail because of the various federal charges that are being made against Netanyahu. But in terms of the calls for a ceasefire, it's interesting that there are demonstrations now in Israel. They want the hostages back. 
they're willing to put off or maybe even abstain from uh, an invasion to get the hostages back. And I think that's what Hamas has maneuvered itself into in trying to capture the attention of uh, the mainstream media around the world uh, and social media by the release of what is now four hostages. That was Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, former CIA analyst and author. Find links to related analysis and commentary on the Israel-Hamas war by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On October 7th, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed Assembly Bill AB 418, known as the California Food Safety Act, that bans the use of four chemical food additives. The four additives, red dye number three, potassium bromate, brominated vegetable oil, and propyl paraben, have been linked in tests to cancer, reproductive health issues, and neurobehavioral problems such as hyperactivity. The European Union, as well as the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, China, and Japan, have all previously banned the use of these four additives in food. After the effective date of 2027, the manufacture, sale, or distribution of food products containing these additives will be subject to hefty fines in California. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Susan Little, Senior Advocate for California Government Affairs with the Environmental Working Group, which was the driving force behind passage of the bill. Here she talks about food industry opposition to the legislation and the impact the new law will have on California and the rest of the nation. AB 418 was initiated due to concerns by um, a broad host of public interest groups and the public at large about the fact that additives added to put into food in the United States, many of them, most of them, are not have not been reviewed by the FDA. And in fact, since the year 2000, 99% of food additives have not been reviewed or cleared for safety by the FDA. Instead, they are reviewed, essentially self-certified as being safe by chemical companies and food manufacturers through um, a process kind of set up by the FDA that allows for this sort of self-certification. That's scary. It is very scary. And I think the general public on the whole has not been aware of that, except for a, a contingent of nonprofit groups that have been working to try to get the FDA to be more engaged and more proactive. But unfortunately, our, our work to do that over the last decade really has not unfortunately not been successful. How did you come up with these four chemicals? The way we came up with the chemicals that were listed and that are listed in the bill is we looked at what other countries have been doing. We looked at what the EU has done and they have since 2008, the EU has gone and looked at uh, chemicals that had been allowed in food and re-reviewed those chemicals for safety. In some cases, 
prohibited the use of those chemicals. In the case of the AB 418 listed chemicals, the European Union has since the 2008 timeline prohibited the use of those chemicals in food based on new science. And um, the EU's standard is such that if they cannot establish a safe level for that chemical, then they do not allow it. Another filter we use to come up with the chemicals that were in AB 418 are that those chemicals were in large part used in food consumed by children. Candy, in frosting, in baked goods, in soda. That was another rationale behind our targeting those chemicals to try to get them out of California's food supply. The food industry, even though they are already marketing, manufacturing and marketing foods for sale in the European Union that do not contain the AB418 chemicals, the food companies felt like they needed time to change their supply chain in the United States for foods sold, marketed and sold in the United States. And so we went ahead and gave them those extra years so that they could have enough time to comply with the ban here in the U.S. and in California. Susan Little, what were you up against in trying to get this law passed? The food industry has largely enjoyed operating mostly free of regulation. They're able to self-regulate by means of just self-certifying that these chemicals are safe. They were very resistant to this bill. They did not want California telling them what to do or how to manufacture their food. They were um, very much opposed to the bill and worked it very, very hard. Um, all the major food industries were opposed to the bill and um, including everything from dairy to soda industry, as well as the um, candy manufacturers, the bakers, the retailers, and just the general uh, manufacturing industry as a whole. We're all up in arms and opposed to the bill. And since you mentioned that California is the fifth largest economy in the world, um, a lot of things start in California and move east. Do you think that this effort to ban these certain chemicals or maybe other chemicals that are in our food supply will be taken up either by other states or, or by the FDA nationally? We don't have high hopes for the FDA to do anything proactive at this time. We have heard possibly from some other states that might be interested in doing this, but given that the European Union as a whole has already banned these ingredients from food and then California and its large economy are now or has now banned them, we do not expect the food manufacturers to create different formulas for, let's say, Nevada and for California, that we expect them to move forward and conform the food ingredients used in other states to the same requirements for ingredients um, now to be required in California. That was Susan Little, Senior Advocate for California Government Affairs with the Environmental Working Group. Learn more about California's new Food Safety Act by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WBCR in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, KHOI in Ames, Iowa, KPOV in Bend, Oregon, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.